Well, shalom. Oh, you know what? I know that we've been here a half a dozen times, probably. I bet you can do it a lot louder than that. So we're going to try it one more time. Ready? Shalom. Shalom. There you go. That's a lot better. Yeah, um, I've been with Jews for Jesus as a missionary for the last 33 years. My name is Rob Wertheim. Praise the Lord, because it wasn't me. It's not me. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's really a delight to be here this morning. And uh, what I wanted to share with you about this morning is very apropos for this time of the year. The message is the gospel and the feasts of Israel. Now, you know, I know you might think that by mentioning the word feasts, if you're like me, you think of food. What else, right? But actually, we're going to be looking at the festivals of Israel this morning. Now, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39 is our starting point. So that's the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39. And Jesus is speaking here, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify or bear witness about me. I think Jesus is pictured in the entire law, and especially in the feasts of Israel, and that's what I want to share with you today. Now, in the five books of Moses, which we refer to as the Torah or the law, there's a lot mentioned about the God-ordained festivals that are supposed to be celebrated on a yearly basis. And also, if we were to look in particular, Leviticus chapter 23, which um, speaks about the festivals, we have a whole outline of the Jewish festivals and when they occur. And so for those of you who may take notes, um, I'm going to just lay these out for you, and you can write them down and look them up later. Um, The first two festivals taken hand in hand together are Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then following that is Shavuot, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And then we have the third festival here, Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, followed by Yom Kippur, which we just celebrated, actually, a few days ago. If if any of you have any Jewish friends, you know that. And then tonight we celebrate the beginning of the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So you hit it right, guys, by having us come today so you get to hear about the fall festivals. All right. So these festivals, though, they occur throughout the year. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost occur in the spring, while Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot occur in the fall. And the very order of these festivals has a significance to them as well. What could be the reasoning behind this command of God but that the feasts are a portrait of who Jesus is, of what he was to do, and what he'll do when he returns? So let's take a few moments now and examine each of these festivals and their relevance to Jesus. Now, I'd like to tell you first about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was very special to me as I was growing up as a boy in New York City. Now, I bet you couldn't tell I'm originally from New York, right? Who here likes coffee or water? Anyway, just kidding. 
If you remember Rich, Rich had a very thick accent. Mine is, is kind of gone now, mostly. Um, but anyway, Passover was always very special to us because my parents and my brother used to drive to my grandparents' house in the Bronx for what we called a Passover Seder. And basically, um, the Lord's Supper actually, you know, comes out of the Passover Seder. And I remember how special it was to me. And the most special part of that feast was the food. My grandmother and my mom could prepare food, let me tell you. Such things as gefilte fish, chopped liver, and matzo ball soup. Now, hold back your excitement. I can't stand the drooling, okay? Not going to serve it today, sorry. Um, But during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there are two significant items that are to be used. An unblemished lamb, one year old, and unleavened bread. And these two items focus our attention on two central themes, which are redemption and sanctification. And what we do on our Seder plate as a part of that meal, we have a shank bone. I brought one up to show you a lamb's shank bone because obviously we no longer offer up sacrifices, right? So that's a shank bone. And remember that God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and to apply its blood to the doorposts of their homes while they were in Egypt. And the reason for that was so that the firstborn children, that their lives would be spared when the 10th plague came upon the land of Egypt, so that they wouldn't die. And in this plague, the angel of death would pass over the homes of those faithful Israelites who had applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, and they would therefore be redeemed. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as, of course, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. And I can see that God asked for a lamb without spot or blemish to illustrate the coming of the Messiah who would be without sin and who would offer himself as a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for us. And just as the Israelites had to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes. So each one of us must apply the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. In this way, we can be redeemed from the power and penalty of sin. And then the unleavened bread or matzah of the Feast of Unleavened Bread represents our sanctification. And I know somebody is saying, well, how do you know this, right? What's this mean? Well, you know, in many places throughout the Bible, you remember that leaven is often referred to as sin. For instance, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in in the scriptures, right? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. And Paul also refers to leaven um, or yeast in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and following. So we can see that these two festivals go hand in hand with one another. First we have Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread to represent our redemption and our sanctification at being set apart from this world, from the sins of this world. What a picture of what 
this festival and what this means for us who believe in Jesus of how we should live for him. And then the next festival mentioned in Leviticus 23 is the festival of Shavuot, or as I said before, we call it Pentecost. And Pentecost gets its name from the Greek because penta means 50, and you might say 50 what? Well, it's actually 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. And, and so it's a time of ingathering of first fruits from the harvest. And by the way, in traditional Judaism, this festival has come to represent the time when the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. As if you, if you would, um, say a constitution, in a sense, a forming of the Jewish people, right? And if you remember, something else significant happened during Pentecost, right? If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, there was the giving of the Holy Spirit, would represent, which represented the giving of the new covenant that was going to be not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles that had trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And there's a verse, a passage, that I'd like us to refer to right now. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to look at verse 31 to 34. So if you turn there with me <clears throat> right now, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. And it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. What covenant is that? The Mosaic covenant. But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this prophecy written by Jeremiah some 600 years or so before that event in Acts chapter 2. And you know, it's so fitting that as a tradition that my Jewish people read the story of Ruth in synagogues every year at this time. Um, the book reminds me of the harvest of those 3,000 souls that day in Acts chapter 2. And secondly... Do you remember what we know about Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile by birth who chose to call upon the name of the God of Israel as her God. What a beautiful picture of how one day Gentiles would also call upon the name of the God of Israel as their God through the Messiah Jesus. Then following Shavuot in the Jewish calendar is Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year. And again, I'm curious, how many of you have somebody that you know that's Jewish? Okay, good, a number of you. Well, then you know that as uh, in the last week and a half, there was a celebration of Rosh Hashanah, and people often say the Jewish New Year. But biblically, 
It's a feast of trumpets. And the kinds of trumpets that are blown at this feast are not brass trumpets. They're not silver or gold trumpets. They're ram's horns. They're called shofarot. And I brought a shofar. I didn't say a shofar. I said a shofar, right? Anyway, I brought one up, and I'm going to see how my embouchure is. I'm a string player, so I'm not a wind player. But let's see if you can get a, a sound. I can get a sound. Praise the Lord. Doesn't always work. Anyway, and trumpets were blown for a number of reasons according to the book of Numbers, chapter 10. According to that chapter, they were blown to summon the congregation or the leaders of Israel to gather themselves when they met. Another reason they were blown was that when the Israelites went out to war with their enemies, they blew their shofarot to remind God as if he needed a reminder that he was their battle commander and he was going to go into the battle before them. But then the most important reason I think that the trumpets were blown, they were blown over the sacrifices and the offerings during the appointed feast, probably so that people would be stirred up and they would recognize the need for the sacrifice, the need to repent for their sins. And in synagogues, every year, Genesis chapter 22 is read during the festival of Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Truah is another, the Hebrew name, the Day of Trumpets, okay? And so we read the, what's called the Akedah, which is the binding of Isaac during this time. And what a beautiful picture of a future sacrifice that God would make for all of us. God called Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, who was a child of promise, born by miraculous means. You remember Sarah had been 90 and Abraham was pushing 100 when Isaac was born. And so God called Abraham to take his son Isaac and to go up to Mount Moriah that he would sacrifice him. And do you remember that Isaac carried the wood for the burnt offering, and that Isaac himself was the very sacrifice that was to be made. But at the last minute, what does God do? He provides a ram caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. And does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should, because who is the Messiah? He's a miraculous, promised child of God, Born by miraculous means, right? He carried the wood for the sacrifice for himself, the cross, and he died in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, very prophetic festival, isn't it? And then between Rosh Hashanah and the next festival, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, there are the ten days of awe, according to the rabbis. And according to them, they say to remake yourselves by repentance before, uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They believe that God would therefore hold the people guiltless, regarding them as a newly made creature. And then this period culminates in Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the themes of Yom Kippur are redemption and reconciliation. You see, every year... 
the Jewish people celebrate this festival by fasting, by praying in synagogues in unison, confessing their sins as one body. But there's one element mentioned in Leviticus chapter 16 and 17 that's missing from today's observance of Yom Kippur. It's the blood sacrifices. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it states, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. And so the reason why that's so important is because the sacrifice was meant to show the people that there was a price to pay for the sins that they had committed and that God would accept a substitute. Again, this beautifully illustrates God's plan of salvation through his son. Those sacrifices pointed us in faith to the one who would offer up himself as a one-time sufficient sacrifice for us all. <clears throat> and not only that, but just as a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make this sacrifice for himself and for all the people of Israel. So Jesus, acting as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we read about in Hebrews chapter 7, came before the Father on our behalf. And I think a passage that will have new meaning to you after this morning, which I'd like you to turn to right now, is found in Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to be reading from verse 24. So turn with me there if you have your Bible or your phone app or whatever to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 and following. And it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as a high priest enters a holy place year after year with blood not his own. What festival do you think that might be talking about? Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Messiah also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So again, very, very prophetic, isn't it? Yom Kippur. And then finally, we come to the last festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, which is Sukkot. And there are a number of other names to describe this festival, such as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this festival is characterized by rejoicing. Rejoicing not only over God's provision in the harvest, but for his forgiveness after Yom Kippur. And my people have various observances during this time, again, which starts this evening. We have something which we wave throughout the week called a lulav and an etrog. And a lulav means, in English, sprout. It's made of 
of palm, willow, and myrtle branches tied together. And this is an etrog. I know you're thinking it's a lemon. Well, it's a big lemon, if you will. And according to the rabbis, this lulav represents the, a person, the spine of the person, etc. And this represents the heart of the person. And so we wave <clears throat> the lulav and the etrog up and down and from side to side, praising God to whom the four directions of the world belong. Now, I have a question for you. Does the waving of palm branches before the Lord ring any bells with you? We think of Palm Sunday, don't we? But what festival were they celebrating just after Palm Sunday? They were celebrating Passover, weren't they? So they were celebrating, if you will, Sukkot out of sync. Maybe they thought when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was going to establish his physical kingdom right then and there. But it wasn't to be, obviously, because Passover had to occur first. And then secondly, if you look at Luke chapter 9, which speaks of Jesus' transfiguration before Peter, John, and James, we find a very interesting reaction from impulsive Peter. Do you remember? When he saw Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah on that mountain, what did he say? Let's build booths, right? You ever wonder why? Well, perhaps he thought, I've made it. The kingdom is here, and I'm a part of it, right? But again, wasn't to be, but it was a prophecy that he might have been thinking of in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, being filled before his eyes. And this festival, Sukkot, has a number of implications for each of us as well. During the 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites lived in these temporary dwellings, these temporary huts in the wilderness. And we who know Jesus as our salvation and Lord need to remember that right now we're living in these temporary dwellings of flesh and blood. But that he promised that one day we would be with him. In fact, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you where you will be with me, prepared rooms for you, where we'd be with him forever in John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. So, and we also need to remember the reason why the Israelites were made to wander in the desert for those 40 years. It was a result of their rebellion in God in unbelief and in his provision. And those of us today who know Jesus as God's provision can rest in the fact that a place is reserved for us in heaven where we will be with him forever. But, but, what about those who have not trusted in the Lord and in his provision? Well, for them, both Jews and Gentiles, they'll have seen the promised land from afar. But because of their lack of faith, they'll not be able to enter in. It reminds me of Moses. You ever wonder why Moses, as faithful as he was, probably more faithful than you and I will ever be, he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. There was a, a te temporary lack of faith when God instructed him the first time to strike a rock for water to come forth from it. Moses obeyed. He was obedient. As hard to believe as that might have been, that it would happen, he obeyed God and water came forth from the rock. 
but then a second time when God instructed him to speak to the rock, that water would come forth from it. In his anger and his frustration and perhaps his lack of faith, he struck the rock again. And God, in his grace and mercy, provided the water the people needed despite Moses' disobedience. However, we know the good news is that even though Moses did not enter into the promised land of Canaan, we know that he entered into the the promised land that awaits us as well, to be with the Lord forever. I think the transfiguration, that testimony is enough to tell us that he made it, right? So we don't have to worry. But you know what? It's so simple, yet so difficult. That's why we need to trust in his provision too. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father, we praise you and we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to die for us. Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation that you laid out for us throughout the Feast of Israel so that this morning we're all without excuse, Lord, and we know it. Let me speak to you a minute longer while your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. Perhaps you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Yeshua, in Jesus, as your Lamb of God, as your Messiah. I want to give you an opportunity right now. If you have never done that and you want to, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but while everybody's eyes are closed, I want you to just slip up your hand because I'd like to pray a simple prayer with you and for you. If there's anybody at all that hasn't done that before and you want to. Okay, keep your eyes closed another minute. I know most of you, if not all, perhaps are believers. And maybe today you want to rededicate your life to Jesus. I'd like to pray for you as well. And if there's anybody like that and you'd like me to pray for you, if you just slip up your hand as well so I could pray for you. Okay. Father, thanks again for your blessings upon us. Thank you for the promise of salvation that we have in your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have to speak about our ministry, so that's a minute. That's okay. When you came in, you should have received a um, a white card that looks like this with a picture of Sandy and me. Sandy is here, by the way. Sandy, would you raise your hand? That's my wife, so she's here with me. And if you take the card out right now, this is a way of sending you our free Juice for Jesus newsletter. And I'm wondering, you know, how many of you are already getting the newsletter. Anybody? Okay. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. It's free. And if you fill out the card today and you, you turn it in later on, we want to send you something. We want to send you a map, a map of Jerusalem. And it's a two-sided map. It looks like this. This is the uh, Jerusalem in ancient times. And then this is modern Jerusalem with prayer needs on here. So you can pray for our ministry there in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And also, I wanted to mention one other thing. I know we've become very technically savvy these days. And so I know that in addition to this paper card, um, there are other ways that you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm going to ask you to take out your phone right now if you don't feel like filling out a card. And in your browser, I want to give you this code. Okay, so listen closely. It's J, the number four, 
j.co slash 603266. I'll read it again. J, the number 4j.co slash 603-266. And when you get there, whether it's now or later, you can go back to it later. You have a chance to sign up for our newsletter there. And also, um, I want to share about our ministry a little bit, and then you'll have an opportunity later to give toward the work of Jews for Jesus, too. Um, as a missionary with Jews for Jesus, one thing I do quite a bit of is I visit with Jewish people on a one-to-one -one basis, and I know you might think with COVID-19 that that must have been a real hardship on, on my ministry. But actually, it's been amazing. Because something that I do quite a bit of is I do what we call live chat at our ministry website. It's kind of like if you have a problem with one of your bills, like AT&T or whatever, and you need to go online and, and text you know, somebody for help. Well, we do the same thing at our Jews for Jesus website. And so you'd be surprised, there are a lot of Jewish people that come to our website that are curious about Jews for Jesus and what it means to be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And I want to share one account. Last December, I um, was chatting, you know, chatting, typing back and forth with a Jewish woman from Southern California. Her name is Sharon, a different Sharon than the one that Dan mentioned a while ago. And Sharon is in her mid-70s. Her uh, son is a believer, he's Jewish, Jewish believer, and he's been after her to really consider following Jesus. And so she must have been ta technically savvy enough. She came to our website, and we, we met, and we were chatting back and forth. And I said to Sharon, because I could sense her openness, I said, would you be open to a phone call? Maybe we can meet by phone. And she said, sure. So within a half hour after that, I was on the telephone with her, and we met probably for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And it's very interesting because it, uh, what Dan said before, Sharon told me the same thing. You know, she's in her mid-70s, her parents had passed away, but she felt that the idea of accepting Jesus as her Savior, as her Messiah, would be not only offensive, but it would be almost like becoming a traitor to the Jewish people. And you know what? I can say firsthand, initially when I heard the gospel, that was my feeling as well, back when I was 16, because um, I grew up conservative Jewish myself. So I shared with her, and then we began to meet by phone on a weekly basis, going through the gospel of John. And it was this past Passover that Sharon gave her, her heart to the Lord. And I've been ministering to her by phone, and... Um, other people that I meet with um, through uh, our live chat, there's a woman in uh, Vermont who's a Jewish believer who I meet with on a regular basis. Very few evangelical churches there. No Jewish believers that she's aware of. And we're going through the book of Acts right now. So I meet with a lot of people using Zoom or other video type apps and um, minister to a lot of Jewish people that way. Another thing I do a lot of in the Bay Area is I attend Jewish classes. You might wonder, well, why do you do that, right? Well, it's, it's part of what we call our Jewish Immersion Initiative. What that basically means is not Jewish baptism, okay? I know when you hear immersion, you think baptism, probably. But, um, but what it is, 
It's to immerse ourselves in our Jewish community, to get to know and to build relationships with other Jewish people. And so I attend a Torah study with a local synagogue on Friday mornings, every Friday morning, and I'm building relationships with different people. I've even had some individual visits in person with Jewish people as a result of some of these classes. So that's another thing I do. And then lastly, I want to just mention to you that uh, we have a, a large work in Israel now. It's our largest work. I was telling Pastor Dan earlier that we have two branches in Israel, one in, in Tel Aviv, and we just opened up one in Jerusalem about six months ago. Yeah, and we're doing a lot of ministry. Believe it or not, in Israel, there are homeless people. There are addicted people, drug addicts. There's even prostitution. And so we have various groups that minister to these different segments of the community. And so why am I telling you all this? Because you're going to have an opportunity to give to work, the work of Jews for Jesus as you leave. Um, there's that box out there. And if the Lord leads you to give, the money goes towards our outreach. That's what it's plain and simple. That's what it's about. And even if you're not led to give this morning, fill out that card anyway so we can stay in touch with you with our newsletter and so you can be reminded to pray for our ministry. So having said all of that, now that the worship team is here, I'm going to turn it over to them. Thank you.